Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So this week I'm really excited because we are going to cover a paper that I read recently about some physics searches from the subfield of physics where I used to work. This is uh, coming out of CERN and the LHC, and I am certainly looking forward to it. Let's uh, see what happens. No, no, no. That was two of them. You're listening to um, Linear Accelerator Digressions. <laughs> well, technically, CERN isn't a linear accelerator. It's a I know, accelerator. I know, I know. I was... That's all right. I forgive you. Uh, I forgive is it called you. a circular accelerator? No, they're called like cyclotrons or synchrotrons or That's whatever, much, depending on how they do that. Much cooler name. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So, for those of you, I don't, I don't talk about this that much, but I don't know. Maybe people know this. Probably most of you don't. So before I was a data scientist, I was a physicist. Yeah, you had a whole life before you were recording this podcast with me. uh, I did. I did. Um, I was still a physicist when we started this, though. I was still in graduate school. That's true. You hadn't uh, gotten your PhD yet. That's correct. And anyway, so I was working in high energy physics, experimental high energy physics. So this is the stuff where they did particle colliders and whatnot. And you get these big data sets and you look through them trying to find signals of usually new physics that we haven't seen before or trying to make measurements of particular quantities that are that are interesting for some reason. And so to give you a little bit of background, the, the paper that we're going to talk about today is a different kind of search strategy than what I used to do when I was there, and that's why I think it's kind of interesting. So I'll tell you a little bit about what I did when I was at CERN and then yeah. contrast this with... But- First, I want to ask stuff. you, what, what do you mean by search strategy? Ah, uh, yeah. Good. You're looking, are, are you looking through data or are you looking, are you looking through data that you've already collected for things to discover or are you uh, looking for particles by trying to measure them in certain ways or something I haven't, something else? Well, so there's this big detector that's collecting data that everyone who's working on the experiment, that's the data that they have to use. So sort of everyone is working from the same data set. Oh, interesting. There's so they, yeah, they explode things. I, I mean, not kind of, they collide particles <laughs> Yeah. and I guess they set up these experiments really, really carefully. And then you've got a whole bunch of people who are all working on the same data set. It's not like, oh, I've got accelerator time. I'm going to smash some particles for me. And then someone else is going to do it for them. And, and you move on. Correct. Correct. For something like CERN, that's how that works. Yeah. And so what you do when you say you set up the experiment really, really carefully, you build a big detector that can detect all the particles that are coming out of one of these collisions. And then there is some differentiation amongst the different kinds of things that you're looking for. Uh, these are called triggers, and it's basically the logic within within the detector itself or on computers nearby that say whether an event is interesting enough for you to keep and analyze because there's so many collisions that you can't keep all of them, so you have to have some, uh, some very uh, steep cuts uh, just early on to make it so you can collect the most interesting events for analysis. So once an event passes one of those triggers and we say, okay, it looks like there's something interesting going on here, it gets recorded to to one of the data sets and then someone like me comes along and analyzes it. 
And so the search strategies, when you ask what's a search strategy, so the way that my thesis worked was there was a particular type of particle that uh, may or may not exist, probably doesn't, uh, but that's okay. That's, you know, most of us are looking for things that ultimately don't exist, and that's just how science is. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was looking for was a particular type of what's called supersymmetric Higgs boson, which is kind of like a Higgs boson if you're familiar with particle physics. You don't mm-hmm. have to be, but it's just, just a type of particle. Uh, this is related to a particle that actually exists, but it's a little bit different somehow. And so it would be interesting if it existed. And so when I was looking for it, I had a very particular idea of the type of particle that I was looking for. And moreover, you don't see these particles directly. They exist for a fraction of a second and then they decay into other particles. And those other particles are what you actually see in the detector. So I was looking for a very particular type of particle that was decaying in a very particular way. So I was looking for events that had a particular, what we call a particular signature that I could then reconstruct back to, oh, maybe there was a Higgs here. And then that's how you do the science is you, uh, you start out with an idea of exactly what it is you're looking for and exactly how you're going to look for it. I see. So you don't just look at the data to try to find things. You have to predict that things will exist, and then you look for those things. And those things are not even the particle directly, but they are the uh, byproducts, I guess, of that product uh, of that particle's existence. Does that feel Correct. right? Yeah, okay, cool. yeah. I think that's a pretty good snapshot of it. And so that's where this paper was kind of interesting to me. And I think this was actually a listener suggestion, and I deeply regret that I cannot go back. I, I can't find. <laughs> who sent me an the, email or tweeted this at me. So if, if you did, my apologies. The um, email didn't um, trigger being saved? Or... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I, I mean, maybe you should change tweet. your... I don't know. You could uh, improve your search strategy to... I'm going to stop now. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the title here... And this, has got, this is a long title, so buckle in. Oh, okay, I'm ready. A strategy for a general search for new phenomena using data-derived signal regions and its application within the ATLAS experiment is the title of the paper. It has is that, probably 3,000 authors. Is that, is that an average paper title length, would yes. you say? In, I think that's about right. In this field? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That feels like an abstract to me. but like Well, the I mean, the paper is 62 pages long, so maybe just everything is bigger in high-energy physics. All right. Um, but anyway, so what are they saying here? So uh, a general search for new phenomena using data-derived signal regions. And that's what I think is kind of interesting here. So the idea that there's a general search means that we're not looking for one particular type of particle here, but instead this is a, a search strategy that should be applicable to many different types of particles. So there could be all kinds of interesting stuff in there and... Uh, we might not care exactly what it is. We just are looking for things that look weird. Oh, interesting. So rather than predicting, I am looking for this particle, and therefore I'm looking for these signatures of of these decayed particles, and et cetera, et cetera, you're almost creating an equation for deciding what looks anomalous and what looks potentially interesting. Exactly. 
And so a general search for new phenomena using data-derived signal regions. So this whole idea of new phenomena using data-derived signal regions. So this is kind of interesting because in order for this search strategy to work, you're looking for something that looks weird. And looks weird is uh, somewhat subjective in the sense that there's a bunch of different physics processes out there that you're going to see when you do this search. And there we understand what they are. We've seen them before. We've measured them. You know, these are events that we expect to see. And it's the weird stuff is kind of, we call those background events usually. And then the weird stuff is anything that's not explained by background. And so in I order see. to, f- yeah, so in order so to, yeah, go ahead. So, so you're looking for weird things that you have not yet explained. Exactly. And, and maybe some of those weird things even interact with each other and they look like something you haven't explained. But then once you, uh, upon further analysis, you find that actually, oh, no, it's this weird thing plus that weird thing. And we understand it. Well, kind of, yeah. And I think you're starting to pull on the, yeah, the thread that I wanted to pull on too, which is that in order to say something, oh, this looks weird, this doesn't look like background, you need to understand really well what your backgrounds are. Mm-hmm. Because if if you have no idea kind of what you were expecting and then you see something you don't know if it was what you were expecting or not because you didn't you know didn't have that well quantified before so this is a type of search that's actually it's actually really hard because you need to have a very clear idea of what all those backgrounds are and yeah be able to say when something doesn't look like a background does that mean that every person doing analysis has to understand all of the things that have been discovered before or is there some sort of a way that those things have been have been cataloged or recorded or or something where the system could actually identify some of these things somewhat automatically well so the the way that it most directly gets into the searches when we're doing them is there are these generators of fake data we call them monte carlos yeah. And it, it generates fake data that looks like certain types of signal processes or background processes, puts it through a whole bunch of fancy calculations that make it look like the data that comes out of the detector. So usually as there's new understandings that we have of these physics processes, those get baked into the Monte Carlo generators, and then they're used to create fake data that helps us know what they look like when they actually show up in the detector, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically, as you find the weird things, you're able to generate more events that look like those weird things. So that way you can, you know, maybe train models to detect when those weird things happen and then filter those out or consider those background. Yeah. And I was going to say, and then at some point they stopped being weird. There was this thing that we used to say in physics where it was something like, yesterday's discovery is today's measurement and it's tomorrow's background. The idea that we find these things and then we measure them and then they become kind of part of the canon and we move on to the next thing. Right. That's crazy. Um, It must be so difficult to get into high energy physics as all of these discoveries are coming, uh, are coming out because you've got a larger and larger and this is this is for another episode and I actually think we did an episode where we talked a bit about this just like how do you familiarize yourself with everything in your field that might be relevant to you and that's probably when specialization starts really coming in I mean sure it's like any other scientific field there's almost certainly more to know than any person 
could know. But yeah, then you yeah. start to specialize in something. Anyway, to to keep going with the with the search here, um, mm-hmm. and then the last thing that I think is kind of cool here is, you know, you're doing a general search for new phenomena using data derived signal regions. So the the general idea of this study is we want to look in a whole bunch of different places using one general search algorithm for things that look weird, uh, you know, and we're trying to do it in data because, well, we don't know where the signal might be hiding in the data. So we want to do this very broad search across many different regions in the data. And so this is a little bit dangerous for, for one very important reason, which is that it's you know, the way that we say whether something is interesting or statistically significant is based on, uh, you know, usually something like a p-value, which is a quantification of whether under the null hypothesis, which in physics is usually that there is no new physics in some distribution that you're looking at. Say there is no new physics here. What is the likelihood of seeing a, a distribution that's like this or more more anomalous in that null mm-hmm. hypothesis. So anyway, usually in scientific fields, uh, the p-values that it takes to to publish a paper or to say that there there could be something interesting here is like five percent or one percent or something like that. So it's saying that under the null hypothesis, it's you know hopefully more likely than not that you would not get a distribution that looks like this. Like, it looks weird. It's a it's a scientific way of saying this. Like, something here looks weird. And the problem with doing a very broad search like this, like, the number of different types of places that they're looking for stuff is, depending on how you define these things, you know, seven over 700 different channels that they're looking in. Each one of those channels is a histogram that's got a bunch of bins in it. So altogether, there's almost 37,000 histogram bins. Each one of those can have something weird going on in it, just maybe because of physics, or maybe just because of like statistical fluctuations. These things happen. And so when you're looking in 700 different places or 37,000 different places, it's guaranteed that you're going to see very rare things sometimes, mm-hmm. just because of so many places that you're looking. So it's really easy to think that you've found something strange when what you've really done is just looked in a whole bunch of different places. It's the general idea that if you were to flip a coin 50 times, the most likely outcome is probably something like 25 heads and 25 tails. But if you were to repeat that process, say, 10 million different times of 50 flips, you know, at some point you're going to get... 30 heads and 20 tails, or maybe even 35 heads and 15 tails. And that's, that's really rare, but you've just done it so many times that it comes up at some point. Right. Okay. So let's say that you're, let's say that you're running, let's say you're doing, uh, searching in 10,000 different places. Then how do you deal with that? I mean, do you just reduce your P value threshold below 5% or 1%? Um, down to some number below what you would expect you would see, like where you would expect to search in 10,000 places and there's only a 5% chance that that one of them would be 
a false positive or because it feels like in a sense then you're leaving a lot of possibilities on the table too because you have such stringent requirements for um, what you have to observe. Well, that's usually the way that physics has often dealt with these things in the past. So when we were working on the Higgs discovery back in 2012, this is fairly typical of new particle discoveries. There's a standard of kind of discovery proof for high energy physics, and we call it five sigma, which is, oh gosh, I forget the exact number now, but it's a p-value that corresponds to basically one in three and a half million, I think. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong about that. So it's not 1%, it's not 5%, it's whatever percentage one part in three and a half million is. And they came up with that because they were like, well, it's kind of a round number, the five sigma, five sigma <laughs> refers to a, yeah. uh, you know, likelihood distribution basically. And, you know, it's kind of, five sigma is easy to remember, but it's, it's such a small chance that something like that would happen under the null hypothesis that they feel pretty safe if that any time they see something with that statistical significance, something's going on. Uh, so the, the one answer is you just make it so there's a very, very high standard of evidence before you say that there's a discovery. And then the second answer is this is this multiple test problem or the look elsewhere effect, or there's a bunch of different names for this idea that you're looking in a bunch of different places for something strange. And so you need to correct for that. Uh, there's, there's standard corrections for that. The most famous one is called a Bonferroni correction, which is where you'll do basically if you're looking in 10 different places, you'll divide by 10 in terms mm-hmm. of the, you know, you have 10 different chances. And so each one of them has to be kind of 10 times stronger or something like that in order for you to take it seriously. I'm oversimplifying here. The problem with using a Bonferroni connection correction in physics, in high energy physics, is that that correction basically assumes that all of those different places that you're looking are not correlated with each other. So each one of them is independent of all the other ones. But yeah, in physics, that's not really the case because even though you're looking for many different types of events, they're all affected by the same measurement apparatus. So let's say, for example, Mm -hmm. that let's say there's energy resolution problems that you have with your electrons just because you know it's a detector and it's not perfect and so there's going to be energy resolution problems that you have with your electrons like these things happen well that's going to affect every single distribution that has electrons in it and there's potentially a lot of them and so saying that each one of them is independent from all the other ones that isn't really true anymore because they all get pulled around by the same kinds of systematic errors And moreover, the stuff that affects electrons, depending on what subsystem it is, could also affect the muons, and it could also affect your, you know, B-jets. And so it gets really hinky to try to figure out what that correction should be, because all of these things are related to each other. So anyway, all this to say that that very high standard of evidence for, for physics in some ways makes it easier than trying to understand all the the minute details of these correlations that come from come from the measurement system you just throw up your hands and you say like i don't know this is you know i'm going to try to quantify it but at the end of the day this is really hard and we should probably just 
say that we have to be really, really sure. So anyway, the last thing I wanted to say about this paper, so the general idea is you say a bunch of types of particles in the detector that you would be interested in seeing. So these are things like electrons and muons and mm-hmm. B-jets and those types of things, photons. You do all the combinatorics of those types of objects with each other. So you say, you know, one electron, one muon, one B-jet, two electrons, one muon, one B-jet. You go through all the different combinations and permutations and whatnot, and you come up with, that's how you come up with 700 different places that you might look, 700 different channels is all the different oh, combinations of those particles. Yeah. And then for each one of those types of channels, you look at all the events that are in that channel and you look for anything that doesn't agree with your background expectation. And then the thing that's kind of interesting here is they have, you know, corrections for all the different places that they're looking. And they say that if there's something that they see in one of these data-driven signal regions that suggests something that is interesting and where they, where there might be some chance of a signal... If I'm reading the paper correctly, it sounds like basically what the plan is then is to, in a subsequent data set, so they would start taking a new data set at the detector that was just zeroed in on those types of events, and they would collect more data, and they would look to see if there's still a signal in this new independent data set. So in that second scenario, you've, mm-hmm. you don't have any other channels that you're looking in. It's just this one of interest. Um, and so then the you don't have this sort of multiple testing problem. You don't have a look elsewhere effect. You're just you're just looking at the one signal of interest, and then and then it's a lot easier. But they didn't find anything that met that threshold. That's kind of the that's kind of the punchline of the whole paper. Is uh, we didn't find anything. Um, uh, I <laughs> mean, I figure that's really with cool. physics. That is often the punchline. Yeah, I mean. That's I'm I'm living proof of that. Most of the time, you don't you don't find anything. Um, but I thought it was such a cool and interesting and challenging problem that it's still worth thinking through anyway. So I have a question for you. Uh, given that you come from high energy physics and now you're in um, data science in a totally unrelated field, when you come across these papers. Um, do, like, do you read these papers differently? Do you read them with more gusto or more excitement or something like that? Just because it's a part of your life and, and a part of your brain that you don't really exercise anymore. And so maybe it's more interesting or I don't want to put your words in your mouth, though. Yeah, I think so. But I also, because I'm reading them for pleasure, or you know, for the podcast, which uh, is kind yeah. of the same thing, I can I can cream skim. <laughs> like, this is probably the first paper physics paper I've read in a year. And it was a really good paper, but uh, it's not like... You don't have to read every detail and understand every piece of it necessarily. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, is that sometimes, I don't know, I'm reading through how they did all the systematic errors on their, like, renormalization and factorization scales, and I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to skip this. (laughs) And, I mean, in fairness, because there's such a large quantity of papers that are coming out of these experiments. That's kind of fair to do, even when you're still in the field, unless something weird is going on, because there's kind of Mm -hmm. typical standard ways that you estimate uh, a lot of these common uncertainties and things like that, just to keep things moving along. But yeah, I did. I actually really enjoyed this paper. So um, I think it was a good paper, but maybe that's also saying that it's just because it's less fatiguing when it's something that you do less often. 
Nice. Well, I always love learning about physics. So maybe every year or so uh, I would love if you write a physics paper and then uh, <laughs> taught us all things. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And uh, that sounds good to me. I will talk to you about physics again in a year. <laughs> Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.